During World War II, scientists at the Manhattan Project unlocked the secret of the atomic bomb, creating the most horrific weapon ever conceived by man. After the war, engineers and industrial companies seeking to profit from the terrible invention convinced the public it could be used for peaceful purposes to generate power at low cost. But a mistake or accident at a nuclear power facility is not the same as a mistake or accident anywhere else. The possibility of killing millions of people with a single burst of radioactive material is unique to nuclear power plants and bombs. This is why nuclear power has never taken hold the way proponents wanted or expected. This is why we need to develop safe sources of energy that don't have the potential to wipe out entire populations. And this is Green Street. Hello again and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, engineers, authors, reporters, physicians, public health experts, and sometimes even politicians, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is going on around you and how you and your family can live a better, safer, and healthier life in this increasingly dangerous and toxic world. It was 40 years ago that a combination of events at a nuclear power plant in the middle of Pennsylvania caused a partial meltdown and the release of radioactive gas into the atmosphere without the knowledge of the folks living nearby. Today on Green Street, we'll talk with a professor of women's studies turned documentary filmmaker who's finishing up a fabulous new film about the women of Three Mile Island and a scientist and nuclear engineer who will explain what happened what could happen again, and why we need to re-examine our use of nuclear energy as our fleet of nuclear-fueled power plants continues to age. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us today? My first article is from the Children's Health Defense, and it's published on their website, and the title is Judge Greenlight's Lawsuit Alleging Heavy Metals in Baby Food Linked to Autism, ADHD. A lawsuit alleging baby food manufacturers knew their products contained high levels of heavy metals will advance to trial. Judge Amy D. Hogue for the Superior Court of the State of California ruled the plaintiff's experts used sound scientific evidence to argue that heavy metals found in certain baby foods can cause autism spectrum disorder, autism, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, in children. The ruling stems from a lawsuit filed in September of 2021 by the parents of an eight-year-old boy alleging that he developed autism and ADHD after consuming significant amounts of baby foods from companies named in the suit. Those companies are Beechnut, Gerber, Hane Celestial, Nurture, maker of Happy Family Organics and Happy Baby, Plum Organics, Sprout Foods Incorporated, and Walmart, maker of Parents' Choice. This is the first personal injury lawsuit related to heavy metals in baby food and the first case of its kind in the U.S. to proceed to trial. Judge Hogue's ruling followed a special hearing held earlier this year when the legal teams for the plaintiffs and the defendants presented their experts and educated the court on the science that underpins their arguments. This type of hearing encourages courts to act as the gatekeeper for which scientific evidence is admissible in court. The lead attorney for the family said in a statement, quote, 
We are pleased but not surprised by Judge Hogue's ruling. The science is clear. We believe that once a jury hears the evidence, they will agree that baby food companies knowingly sell products with staggering amounts of arsenic, lead, and mercury, and that exposure to these toxic metals caused our client to develop lifelong brain damage and neurological disorders. An investigation led by the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy sparked a number of lawsuits against baby food makers. The committee's report, issued February 4, 2021, revealed high levels of toxic metals in baby food. Sean Callan, Chief Operating Officer at Ellipse Analytics in Denver, led the team that conducted the largest ever analysis of baby foods, assessing for more than 130 contaminants and toxins. Callan partnered on the testing with the nonprofit Clean Label Project. They released the findings in October 2017. In February 2019, the findings were published in Science of the Total Environment, a peer-reviewed journal. Both the baby food companies and the FDA were warned about the contaminants in baby food and formula, including heavy metals, but the initial interest in their results quickly fizzled. In October of 2019, the nonprofit organization Healthy Babies Bright Futures released a report showing that 95% of tested baby foods were contaminated with at least one of four highly toxic heavy metals, inorganic arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury. Many products were contaminated with two or more of these metals. In children, all four of these metals are known neurotoxins, substances that particularly affect neurodevelopment and intellectual performance. The levels of arsenic found in the baby foods were up to 91 times the maximum allowed in bottled water. The levels of lead were up to 177 times that allowed in bottled water. And for cadmium, up to 69 times the limit in bottled water. Mercury levels in the baby foods tested were up to five times the level established by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for drinking water. This is an unbelievable report. I mean, uh, yeah, this, this is pretty is... shocking. And it's and and there are organic, organic manufacturers in there, and that's that's really problematic because you know people are really careful with their babies, and yeah, if they sure. can possibly afford it, they will buy you know Plum Organics or you know Happy Family Organics. This is amazing. And they knew about it. And they though that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. A lawsuit. You know, a, a oh, lawsuit boy. alleging baby food manufacturers knew their products contained these high levels of heavy metals. It's Jeez. just one more really, really yeah. good example of how our our regulatory agencies are operating in Washington. And this yeah. is, of course, an FDA issue. Wow. Unbelievable. Really, really okay. amazing. What okay. else you got? So there's a lot of really good stuff here. So here's my next one. Colorado is the first state to ban PFAS in oil and gas extraction. This was published in Environmental Health News and written by Christina Marusek. This month, Colorado became the first state to ban the use of PFAS in the extraction of oil and gas. While there has been widespread outcry about PFAS, which is per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances in consumer goods, such as stain and water-resistant clothing, nonstick pots and pans, firefighting foam, carpets and furniture, the oil and gas industry could be a major and underappreciated source of soil and groundwater contamination. Last summer, an investigation by the advocacy group Physicians for Social Responsibility revealed that the chemicals were often used in the fluids used to extract oil and gas from deep in the ground during fracking. 
The chemicals, which are extremely water repellent, are used in fracking fluid to make the chemical mixture more stable and more efficiently flush oil and gas out of the ground at high pressure. The chemicals have been detected in drinking water across the country and in a broad range of food items, including cow's milk from small dairy farms, leafy greens, and chocolate cake purchased from grocery stores. Plants grown in soil containing PFAS can uptake the chemicals into their plants and roots and make their way into human and animal bodies. PFAS don't break down naturally and are linked to illnesses including cancer, thyroid disease, obesity, and ulcerative colitis. Colorado's new law passed with bipartisan support and bars the use of PFAS in fracking fluids starting January 1, 2024. It also restricts the sale of PFAS in consumer products like carpets and furniture, fabric treatments, cosmetics, food packaging, and children's products, and mandates that the state purchase PFAS-free products. This law puts Colorado at the forefront of states taking action to stop the flow of toxic PFAS chemicals. The report from Physicians for Social Responsibility uncovered PFAS in more than 1,200 fracking wells in Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, and Wyoming between 2012 and 2020. The US EPA approved the chemicals for use in fracking in 2011, despite concerns about their toxicity. It's likely the chemicals were also used in fracking wells in other states, but in some, like Pennsylvania, oil and gas companies are permitted to keep the list of chemicals used during fracking confidential, preventing a full investigation. The lack of transparency about fracking chemicals puts human health at risk. Wow. Okay, so Pennsylvania is not going to disclose that they're using PFOS, but of course it seems like it's a very common chemical used in the fracking process. This is the fracking waste and the fracking gas that goes through New York State. Yeah. And this is why we are working so hard to get fracking waste banned from being placed in landfills, but also more importantly, from being spread on roads because of course the high salinity of the, uh, of the fluid makes it a perfect road spread for the winter months, de-icer, so to speak. So here we go. So now it's not just all those other chemicals and all that radioactive material, but it is also PFAS. These PFAS chemicals seem to be so ubiquitous. They're uh -huh. in everything, chocolate yeah. cake. Oh yeah. Well, you know what? What's interesting about PFAS is that it can play a really important role in so many different manufacturing processes. And yeah. when you add it to things like plastic and you add it to things like clothing, you know, they're really good at selling this chemical mm. to thousands of different manufacturing companies. Wow. We're wow. just in trouble on, the, just, PFAS, on yeah. the PFAS issue. Okay, my last one. This is a really, really interesting article, and uh, it is published in Environmental Health News this month, and the title is Phasing Out Virgin Plastics. In March, the United Nations Environment Assembly adopted a landmark resolution supported by 175 countries to end plastic pollution with a legally binding treaty. Negotiations expected to take two years began this week. As international experts on plastic pollution from eight countries, we've recently argued in a letter to the journal Science that this treaty must cap plastic production and regulate the chemicals they contain. Here's why. In the past 100 years, humanity has introduced an immense amount and variety of new chemicals and plastics to the planet. The current global plastic production is roughly 450 million tons per year. 
If we add up all the plastics produced so far, their weight would surpass the mass of all land and marine animals. Annual production is predicted to double by 2045 when today's preschoolers are adults. They will likely live in a world of fragile ecosystems and a changing climate. If plastic pollution continues unabated, it will exacerbate these problems. Plastics are now found in oceans, rivers, lakes, air, ice, and soil. Scientists have identified tiny pieces of plastic in the human digestive system, in bloodstream, lungs, and even the placenta. While we do not fully understand the impacts of this exposure, these findings are highly concerning. Chemical additives used in the plastics include BPA, flame retardants, phthalates, and thousands of other chemicals, many of which are toxic and have been linked to cancer, infertility, brain damage, and other serious human health conditions. Plastics and chemicals have already altered vital Earth's systems processes to an extent that exceeds the threshold under which humanity can safely develop and thrive in the future. Plastics contain tens of thousands of chemical additives as well as non-intentionally added substances. It's impossible to ensure the safety of this large variety of substances mixed in a myriad of different ways. The life cycle of plastic also has serious climate impacts. It accounts for 4.5% of the annual greenhouse gas emissions and could consume 10 to 13% of our remaining carbon dioxide budget by 2050. This is in part because single-use plastics are heavily produced in countries dependent on coal. It is clear that we need to reduce plastics now. We cannot afford to become yet more dependent on historically flawed and insufficient strategies of downstream waste management. The idea of a circular economy hasn't worked in practice and would be difficult to implement on the large scale needed. Yet the steep increase in plastic production isn't challenged enough. As a result, more and more plastics and toxic compounds are leaking into all corners of the environment and into our bodies. Unfortunately, this isn't a mess we can clean up later. Breaking down into micro and nanoparticles is a form of pollution that is irretrievable and irreversible. Trying to sift it up is a Sisyphean task that might endanger crucial ecosystems, such as the Neuston, tiny organisms floating with ocean currents to areas where plastic waste accumulates. The new plastic treaty could create opportunities for innovation and in technology, society science, and policy making, bringing together citizens, scientists, industry, and governments alike. We hope that it will be strong, binding, and creative, bravely tackling the true roots of the issue. So, we are actually going to have as a guest on this show one of the major players in this um, United Nations Environmental Assembly treaty, you know, process, okay? And that is a scientist from Canada, and he's gonna be with us on this show in about two weeks. Fantastic, yeah. it's great what they're doing. I just hope that it, you know, I wish there were some teeth in these things, but you know, there's so much money to be made in plastic. Um, you know, it's hard to push back against it. All right. We're going to push back. We're going to push back. Yep. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. The cost of virtually everything is going up. Gas prices are high, food prices are high, rents are going up, and the cost of energy is also going up. Some people blame the war in Ukraine. Others say it's the fossil fuel industry trying to squeeze more profit out of a barrel of oil. Whatever the case, energy prices are sky high. 
So it's natural to look at nuclear power and think, well, hey, no greenhouse gas emissions, no fossil fuels, low environmental impact, virtually endless supply of fuel. What's not to love? Well, don't ask the folks in Middletown, Pennsylvania. They have long memories, and they remember what happened in 1979 at the nearby Three Mile Island nuclear plant. At 4 a.m. on the morning of March 28th of that year, there was a failure in a backup system of the plant compounded by a relief valve that was stuck in the open position, allowing large amounts of nuclear reactor coolant to escape. Operators at the plant failed to recognize that the coolant levels were dropping, and by the time they figured out what was happening, it was too late. The damage was done. At that point, instead of alerting the public to the situation, people at the plant, and perhaps higher-ups in the corporate management, decided to tell people it was nothing to worry about. But of course, that turned out not to be true. Today on Green Street, we're excited to have as our guest Dr. Heidi Hutner, a scholar, writer, filmmaker, and teacher of ecofeminism, environmental justice, environmental humanities, nuclear studies, literature, and film. Dr. Hutner chaired the Sustainability Studies program at Stony Brook University for six years and was associate dean in the School of Marine Atmospheric Science and Sustainability. She'll be joined on the show by Dr. Aaron Datesman, who earned a doctorate in electrical engineering from the University of Virginia and has worked with the U.S. Department of Energy in positions promoting science education and developing smart electrical grids. Dr. Datesman is the author of a new paper about the impact of human exposures at Three Mile Island, calling for a comprehensive reevaluation of the conventional understanding of the 1979 accident, especially regarding its impact upon the population of the surrounding area. We started our interview with Dr. Hutner, asking her exactly what went so horribly wrong on that morning of March 28, 1979. That plant should have been shut down. It was in badly in need of repairs. And they kept it running for economic reasons. So it would keep making money. And had it been shut down, we might not have had a meltdown. Mm. And that was covered up. We also know on day one of the, of the meltdown, no one was told there was a meltdown taking place. The company absolutely knew. It was found out by accident that a meltdown was taking place. Sheer accident by a traffic reporter who then called his boss at the radio station who then called the plant and said, you know, it, it, I mean, it was just a sheer accident. And then they covered up what was really happening. And they pretended for a very long time that they didn't know. And they, they knew there was a meltdown taking place. It was perfectly obvious to the people inside the plant. But the company kept telling the public that it was not taking place or that everything was fine. And then at 2 p.m. on that first day, there was a, an explosion in the containment vessel. And no one was told. Meanwhile, families were going to school and, you know, kids are going to school, taking, you know, playing outside, doing all of the normal things. So the problem is that, you know, do we want to be in a position where we're putting our lives in the hands of companies who don't care, who don't tell us? And then a nuclear regulatory commission that is not doing proper oversight and that is really in bed with the nuclear industry. And and in that particular story, it's absolutely true. And um, in our film, we follow up pretty closely what that what the legal story was. And, you know, regardless of how much radiation was released, the public was put in serious peril. And that was not the concern of that company. It was not a priority for them. Mm. And so that is frightening to me. Yeah, it's frightening. Yeah. 
So a lot of these regulatory agencies, whether it's the FCC or the EPA or the USDA or the FDA or the, the NRC, they're all responsible for regulating potentially dangerous public health threats. Really, really serious stuff. I would put this one probably at the top of that list, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but they're all regulating themselves. The, the industries are all part of these regulatory agencies. If, if they're not actually in place as, as, yeah. you know, as employees or staff of these regulatory agencies, they're certainly having a huge influence on how their industry is being regulated. Absolutely. You see it with the decommissioning. Yeah. You know, are these plants being decommissioned safely? Whose interests are being served here? Almost always it's based on economics and, and companies vying for, you know, for contracts and they're not necessarily the best company. And then how it's done is done least expensively, with, again, right. putting the public at risk. Lowest bidders, that's who usually gets the contract. Right. And people just assume that there's some incredible oversight around nuclear facilities and that we're all being taken care of. And that is not a safe assumption. It's not even a, tr it's not a true assumption. I talked to the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission during the Fukushima crisis. And, you know, he really became a pariah because he wanted more protections. And he had the Nuclear Regulatory Commission look at our power plants after the Fukushima meltdown to make sure that, you know, we were mm -hmm. um, as safe as possible. And he said he had a long list of things that needed to be done. And as of two years ago, when I interviewed him, he said none of them have been done. And he's no longer the head, but he had his own team. Yeah, none of them. Wow. According to him and according to, you know, this is about two years ago, we, we interviewed him from the film. Heidi, can you talk a little bit about the four women that you interviewed for this film? I'm really curious to know how you got to know them and what some of their stories were. Well, it was really, really interesting. So I was invited to speak at Three Mile Island for their 39th anniversary on women and nuclear issues. And uh, we decided, you know, on a whim, I'll take a cameraman with me and who became my co-director and we'll just see what we see. Maybe there's some material here because we were thinking of making a film about women and, and nuclear accidents. And so at 4 a.m., we went every year since the, since the meltdown at 4 a.m. at the time that the accident actually began, uh, they always hold a vigil outside of the plant at 4 a.m. On, on March 28th, uh, every single year. So we went there at 4 a.m. and there were these four incredible women and a few other people. And it was just this sparse little crowd and, and used to be you know, hundreds of people and camera crews and news, news reporters, but just this little lonely group and we were there and we met these incredible women and we went to breakfast with them in the diner, it was about, at this point it was still dark out. Um, and, and they told us their stories and they lived five miles from the nuclear facility. They were, you know, your stay at home, leave it to beaver moms, you know, they working class, they, they, their kids had this sort of, what they said was like a perfect life. You know, they went to school and they baked them cookies and they played ball outside their houses and kids were in and out of each other's homes in this small community. And all of a sudden, so the world changed. All of a sudden, they hear, first they hear, well, no, nothing to worry about, something minor at the plant, but don't worry about it. And two and a half days later, they're told that pregnant women and children who were preschool age and under should evacuate if they live within the, the five-mile range. And so they were in the five-mile range. Some of them, one of, one of these women was pregnant. All of them had young children. 
And at that moment, their lives were turned upside down. They fled along with thousands of others, and they had no idea what nuclear power was. They had no idea that nuclear power plant was potentially dangerous. They had no idea that for two and a half days, they were being exposed to releases that they weren't told anything. Uh, and, and this changed their lives. Mm. These are, you know, apolitical people who just enjoyed being moms and wives and having PTA moms. So really what we, what we learned was their journey from, from that to becoming serious activists and feeling they had to, that they absolutely could not trust the government, that they would go to meetings after when they returned, when they came back. And they heard every meeting was a different story. The information didn't seem to, the dots weren't connecting. When they would ask questions, one of the things they, they said, you know, they were always talked down to as women. They were always disrespected and treated like, you know, little lady pat on the head, go home. And they were literally told to go home and bake their cookies, mm. which was incredibly insulting to them for obvious reasons. And they became experts. They were studying the regulations. They went to all the meetings. And basically, they devoted their lives to trying to find the truth, try to make sure some studies were done because they didn't feel they were being done properly. No one was coming to them and asking them about their health or their neighbors immediately around them. The, the local community of women began doing their own you know, citizen science. Mm -hmm. They didn't feel that outside scientists were doing the kind of work they thought they should, knock on doors follow up with families, talk to individual people. They also were really concerned what happened, and which I didn't know before I went there, was that there's two reactors. The reactor that mel melted down obviously was shut down, but there was the other reactor was offline at the time of the meltdown for refueling. Soon after the meltdown, the company wanted to start it up again. And this is before anything had been studied what happened here, what, you know, what were the reasons mm -hmm. it melted down, and they just wanted to start it up. And the community was up in arms. Like, well, what do you mean? They, they, firstly, they were terrified. Sure. So there was a, a five-year legal battle to what it's called stop the restart. And this went on back and forth and back and forth. And this is where the, the information about how the company lied and was covering up and all their criminal actions came out. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, over and over again, kept trying to squash this, shut it down, and get that plant up and running. And part of our story is two women who fought on the legal end, one of whom was 25 years old at the time. She just gotten out of law school. And a waitress who, you know, it's sort of your Erin Brockovich kind of story, who was a mom, local waitress, single mom, and who just was appalled. You know, what do you mean have a restart? We haven't even looked at why this accident took place, the implications of it, the impact of it. And they took this on and they fought it for five years. It's, it was a truly extraordinary story. And it, went all, it did end up at the Supreme Court. Now they did lose, but they had that, they had the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you know, they gave them a run for their money because you know, here you had this 25 year old, just out of law school student and this waitress with no legal background and very little education fighting them and digging up material and with they didn't have any money to do the legal battle, but some of it was luck. Some of it was other things happened you know, coincidentally. But it's just a powerful story of women really refusing to be shut down and refusing to be shut up. And there were more women locally. You can't, you know, our film tried, we tried to narrow it down. So we had some really mm -hmm. deep personal stories, but sure. it was truly a, a story of women fighting back in all kinds of ways. We don't focus so much on the citizen science end, but there was a whole group of women who worked on that and men too. Men too, but th there really was a very strong female voice 
and our four women who are formed a group called Mothers and Concerned Women. Uh, they formed their own group. They kind of knew each other. Two of them were friends, but they kind of knew each other before, you know, seeing each other at PTA meetings and that sort of thing or ball games. But they came together and became lifelong friends. Today, they're, you know, they're still friends. They're still close. They still, they still take action today. When meetings come up, the four go. It's, it's really extraordinary. The big problem was that new, Nuclear Regulatory Commission that knew, knew about all these issues just wanted to reopen the plant. I mean, the commission shouldn't have allowed it to be reopened, but they did. And they really also didn't go after them enough for, and, and the cleanup is a whole other story, near disaster again with that and cover-ups and criminal action. So the problem is it kind of looks nice on paper nuclear power, but once you start sort of peeling away the legal issues, the safety issues, who's doing the safeguarding, you know, something as simple, and this is another topic, but for instance, at Chernobyl, what people don't realize. So you say, okay, well, Chernobyl's over with and it's okay. And okay, one area you can't go into, although they love to say it's all fine and the animals are thriving, um, which is not what scientists I've spoken to said. But one of the issues is with climate change. So people think, well, we need nuclear power because of climate change. Well, actually climate change <laughs> makes nuclear power even more dangerous uh, because of rising waters, because of warmer waters. You can't cool the plants because the water is, is warmer because of fires. So for instance, in the red forest bordering Chernobyl, that forest has, is highly radioactive. When a fire, and, and there's lots and lots of fires now because of climate change. So they, they have these fires there. And when the fires come, the levels of radiation go back to nearly what they were 30 plus years ago. Mm. So it's this kind of never ending. And of course, there's a plume, right? There's a fire, there's smoke, the smoke's going to spread. So there's just so much that's not obvious unless you keep peeling and seeing that endless problems right. with nuclear power. You're listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood. And our guests today are scholar, writer, filmmaker, and producer of the upcoming documentary film, Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island, Dr. Heidi Hutner, and Dr. Aaron Datesman, author of a new paper about the impact of human exposures at Three Mile Island. Okay, so why women? Why were you focused on the women of this tragedy? Well, it comes out of my work, which I have been looking at the history of nuclear power and weapons through the lens of women, because I was told a story about my mother that I had never heard before and, and a part of a history that I'd never heard before. She was involved with a group called Women's Strike for Peace in the 1950s and early 60s. And that group became active in response to information they found out about strontium-90 from fallout from the nuclear test bombs in the Nevada desert throughout the 1950s. And scientists at that time were concerned that the fallout had spread beyond the Nevada desert. And the government and the military was saying it didn't, it was fine, if you, you know, it was just contained. So the scientists gathered baby teeth from across the US and they found that there was strontium-90 from that fallout in baby teeth from all over the US. And over the time period of the 1950s that the levels of strontium increased and so they were very concerned, and, and a group of women um, headed up by Dagmar Wilson and Bella Abzug, later to become a congresswoman, um, 
organized this group called Women Strike for Peace. And in short order, they really expanded quite quickly. There were 50,000 women who protested against nuclear atmospheric bomb testing. 15,000 of them went to Washington, D.C., and they successfully lobbied and got President Kennedy and the U.K. and the USSR to sign on to the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which halted atmospheric bomb testing in those countries uh, and by those countries. So I'd never heard of this, and I certainly didn't know my mother was involved with this. And after she died, a good friend of hers told me about it. She's one of the women my mother worked with. And I really was, my interest was piqued because I wondered why I was never told this by my mother. Why wouldn't she have felt it was important to share? And also as a, you know, someone working in the environmental sphere and in women's and gender studies, why I'd never heard of Women's Strike for Peace. And that question sort of led me down this journey, which I've been on for the past 15 years or so, of of really studying women in nuclear history. It's, It's incredibly fascinating and really important. So I think, you know, our listeners think about Dr. Helen Caldicott as a a leader, a scientist on this issue. How was she involved with Women's Strike for Peace? Well, she was at that time, she was in Australia and actually quite young. So she wasn't specifically involved with the Women's Strike for Peace, but she actually spearheaded a movement through Australia to do a similar action to stop the French because the French had not signed on to that treaty. So she had a separate action. And that was really important because the French were testing off of Australia. They wanted to, and they were, mm-hmm. and she was really concerned about the radiation. She's actually a physician, mm-hmm. and she was living in Adelaide at the time. She was concerned that uh, they get their water from rain. They, they, it's contained, mm-hmm. and sure. she was really concerned that the water would be radiated and that they would be drinking. So that and the book on the beach, which is about sort of mm-hmm. the end of the world and takes place in Australia, that book woke her up. And then when she started to read about the bomb testing and her concerns about radiation getting into their drinking water. And at that point, she was a pediatrician. And out of that became an activist. She was very politically involved with anti-nuclear issues in Australia. But then she and her husband came to the U.S. as physicians, and they worked through the Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Medical Facilities. And she was still worried about nuclear issues. And one of the things that she was first concerned about was what was happening to the Navajo people and their exposures to uranium because so much of it had been mined there and not properly cleaned up. And the Navajo were exposed to a lot of, as miners, exposed to a lot of uranium and and were not told, so they were harmed. And so she was actually on this journey, went through my own, happened to communicate to the Australian Aborigines who were also being exposed to uranium. She was sharing information about the Navajo with the Aborigines. And then she was in Australia. And at that time, Three Mile Island, you know, the meltdown took place. Do we have a good understanding yet of the human toll of Three Mile Island? That's a really interesting question, and I'm going to have my colleague join us, Dr. Aaron Datesman, who has written a really interesting paper about through my own and shot noise. And um, he has a, a hypothesis which sort of is changing the conversation around this. Yeah, there's not a short answer to that question, um, Doug, but there are indications that a, a more careful study ought to be done, and maybe that we don't know quite yet. I mean, we didn't know, for instance, that it was a surprise, right, that they found the strontium-90 in children's teeth all over the world. It was like, gee whiz, look what we've discovered. We didn't know that. What else don't we know? What do you suspect uh, that we don't know? Are we just seeing the tip of the iceberg? 
I would like to make a distinction between what experts know and what the general public knows. So regarding strontium, I, I was trying to get at the idea that the experts certainly knew that strontium bioaccumulates and strontium is especially dangerous for two reasons. It's a pure beta emitter, so there's no gamma signature. So if you have strontium in your body, there's no way to detect it except to take a part of your body and then use very specialized equipment because the strontium was in the teeth. Second, strontium has a very long residence in the body. It gets in your body and then it never leaves. So strontium was very dangerous. And the experts knew this in the 1930s already that strontium is very dangerous. So it, it's not the case that it, no one was aware, but certainly mothers were not aware that by giving their children milk that they were in fact irradiating their insides. So there's a disconnect there. Regarding transports, there's certainly very good information in the literature, say from Fukushima, that the fallout from Fukushima traveled all over the world very quickly. The best facilities for detection of radioactive materials in the environment are run, in fact, by, uh, it's called the CBTO, which is the governmental organization tasked with enforcing the test ban treaty. And they measured radioactive gases in the atmosphere from Fukushima shortly after the accident all over the world. In the 1970s, sort of preliminary to Three Mile Island, the Chinese had a very dirty bomb test in the Gobi Desert. And radiation monitoring systems run by the Environmental Protection Agency, which was new at that time, found iodine in the milk all over the United States. That was the result of the test that happened in the Gobi Desert halfway across mm. the world, or all the way across the world. So the idea that an accident is contained in any way uh, is localized as of an atmospheric test anyway. Um, and underground tests also release radiation because it's not that easy to blow up a big bomb underground and keep it underground. Um, but the idea that these, these accidents are local and contained and is not scientifically supportable. Um, and I would argue any, with anyone who claims that they are. So what about Three Mile Island? What about those the emissions that came out there? What kind of gases or materials were released? Or, or do we even know that? The principal material released by Three Mile Island was a noble gas, meaning it's not reactive with other elements, uh, called xenon, xenon-133. The only direct measurement of xenon released by the accident that was made anywhere was not made in central Pennsylvania. It was not made in Middletown or Harrisburg. It was actually made in Albany, New York. At the time of the accident on March 29th and 30th, 1979, Albany, New York is 375 kilometers away from the Three Mile Island facility. Obviously, this cloud that was released traveled a great distance, did disperse all that time. It was much more intense, much more concentrated in Middletown than it was in Albany. But it went straight up the Northeast, you know, all over Pennsylvania and New York and, and beyond. It didn't stop at the 10-mile border, as the NRC uh, would prefer to believe. Now, regarding who was impacted, the best study was conducted by Columbia University researchers. It only went through the year 1986, which was only seven years after the accident. So a complicating factor with the best study involved 130,000 people living within 10 miles of the accident, and it examined the releases for the first 39 hours of the accident, which was the majority of the releases from the accident. So really, before the response to the accident by the government, by the NRC, by the utility, really had gotten off the ground, the horse had already gotten out of the barn for the most part. Now, much worse things might have happened, and the industry and government worked very hard to make sure that the worst possible thing did not occur. Um, but a lot, you know, that horse that got out of the barn was a big horse. So what did the, uh, what did the study from Columbia show? 
I mean, what did we what did we find out from that study? The uh, the study that was done by the Three Mile Island Public Health Fund and researchers from Columbia, um, they did a tremendous job. It's a huge thing that they did, and because it was part of a court case, those records were destroyed, and nobody has any access to those records any longer. So one of the criminal things, criminal not in the sense of an actual crime, but criminal in the sense of a moral outrage, is that the records of this investigation into the most serious industrial accident that ever happened in the United States, and one of the world's three most severe nuclear uh, disasters, nuclear power plant disasters, those records were destroyed. And nobody has access to go back and look at them again to try to figure out what happened, to reevaluate them. And that's a crime. So. It's difficult to answer the question you asked because the best study that was done was was thrown away. All right, Aaron. Well, who did the study of the xenon that appeared in Albany, and where are those records? Are those records were those records also destroyed? And okay, uh, no, that's that's a fine question. The New York State Department of Health, with headquarters in Albany, was interested in this question of the health impacts of noble gases as a result of the EPA work. So they actually had a program to go around and take the equipment for cryogenic fractionation and go look at sample streams from the operating reactors in New York State. Hmm. When the Three Mile Island accident happened, they were sitting in their lab there in Albany, and they turned on their equipment and they sampled the air. <laughs> um, they, they published their work in Science Magazine in 1980. It's, it's right out there. You can look it up. But they were the only people who had that equipment and were in the right place at the right time to, to do that. Wow. Now, the levels in Albany were, were very much smaller than the levels um, locally mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. Right. I'm not sure whether they were benign. Uh, I, my belief is that on a population basis, they probably were not benign, and I can do those. But that's why they measured in Albany. Those records were not destroyed. But there has never been an epidemiological investigation of the impact of Three Mile Island extending outside a 10-mile or 5-mile radius. No, nobody asked the question. Well, almost nobody asked the question. There's an interesting caveat there. This cloud went over several states. You know, What were the health impacts in the state of Pennsylvania and the state of New York where the cloud traveled? And I think that work could, in fact, still be done um, using the mortality databases maintained by the CDC. Um, And if I were an epidemiologist rather than a superconductivity scientist, I might do it, but I'm not going to do that myself. So, Aaron, can you talk a little bit about nuclear waste and how we're going to deal with this? I mean, aren't we we're saddling future generations with this real, real problem that they're going to have to deal with? I'm an engineer by training. I actually started my career in the, in the atomic power industry. I was a scientist at Bethes Atomic Power Lab for a while. And this is my definition of engineering. Engineering is the process by which monkeys with opposable thumbs take intractable problems and turn them into even harder, more intractable problems. Okay? So we have all of these terrifying problems you've just described. And the truth of the matter is at the root of it, we made those problems ourselves with the technology that developed that creates these hazards. Mm. I like the joke about the best way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. <laughs> so I, that that's what I say. You you can work the individual problems, and the only thing that's going to happen is there's going to be another problem like that that crops up somewhere down the line. Now we should be thinking about fundamental solutions. How do we get into this mess? I grew up very close to Fairmont Island. I'm a native of Lehigh County, Pennsylvania. One of my earliest memories is actually sitting in gas lines in uh, my hometown of Coopersburg, Pennsylvania in 1979. And you could buy gasoline only on even or odd number of days, depending on your license plate. This would seem very alien to my own children. And so nuclear power developed in an atmosphere of panic following the 1973 oil embargo. And something that ecologically minded people 
should keep in mind. Uh, I encountered this when I was a scientist at Bettis, and so I had a desk at the Department of Energy here in Washington, D.C. for several years. The same messianic fervor that advocates of renewable energy feel for their technology is felt not without justification in the halls of power regarding nuclear technology. Um, it was the magic bullet that solved the oil shortages in the 1970s, or it was, uh, they believed that it would do that. And it is in the nature of experts to be very good at one very special thing inside their silo that supports a, a view of, of themselves as experts in all other areas, which is utterly and completely unjustified. Um, yeah. Experts, in fact, outside of their silo are, are dumber than ordinary people because they think they're brilliant and they're not. <laughs> mm. Mm. So that's part of the problem. Now, about spend fuel, remember, every, every disaster is an opportunity for somebody. So there is a large ecosystem of contractors to the Department of Energy and who look at nuclear waste and they see 10,000 year guaranteed cost plus contracts. And your head should explode at the idea that anyone would be pursuing a 10,000 year contract that's longer than the span of known human civilization in China by factor of two. <laughs> but there really are individuals and corporations who are making projections about bidding for 10,000-year contracts for the storage of nuclear waste, and it's insanity. But we've created this problem, and it's sitting there. And I think it's important to understand the, uh, the arguments that your opponents are, are making to be able to, uh, to see their merits and to, to restate them succinctly and accurately. So the total amount of nuclear waste that we're talking about here in volume is not very large. I think you routinely see comparison of a, a football stadium or something, and all of the nuclear waste that's in all of the nuclear reactors in the United States would fit on a very small portion of this field, and that's just not very much. And it's true. Uh, that's true. Of course, if you put it all together, probably it would all explode in a gigantic thermonuclear fireball, but you can leave out that part of it. But if you, uh, if you have an irradiated fuel rod and you tried to stand next to it, you would be dead of radiation poisoning inside of 60 seconds. There is just no compound that human beings have ever made that is anywhere near as dangerous or deadly. Uh, and it's a problem of ridiculous complexity. And uh, we have the great fortune of living through a time in which we see the competence of our government to continually erode, getting worse and worse every day. And why would you think we could deal with this problem? You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show, Patty and Doug Wood, and our guests today have been scholar, writer, filmmaker, and producer of the upcoming documentary film Radioactive, The Women of Three Mile Island, Dr. Heidi Hutner, and Dr. Aaron Datesman, author of a new paper about the impact of human exposures at Three Mile Island. This is the point in our show where we read some questions we receive from our listeners and give you some helpful information. Last week, we heard from a couple in Columbus, Ohio, who have a new baby and wanted Patty's suggestions about foods for young babies. Any ideas about that? Well, breast milk is best uh, when we're talking about new babies. But when you do begin to introduce new foods uh, for your baby, you want to make sure that they are as free from contaminants as possible. and. That's not as easy as it mm, sounds. I bet. Uh, you know, today our, our food supply uh, is uh, contaminated with lots of things. 
We're talking about chemicals that are used for conventional farming, pesticides and so on, as well as for uh, raising animal products. And that includes dairy. And we have to be really, really careful about that. And then there are things that, you know, we don't even realize, which is that rice has some real problems associated with it. And that's problematic for babies because a lot of the first foods, especially cereals that we give our babies, are rice. I was going to mention, rice is a big, yeah, rice is a big thing for babies. It's interesting. The, the, the contaminant in rice is arsenic. It comes from growing rice in old cotton fields. And we do that pretty commonly here in the United States. Yeah. And so those cotton fields uh, have been sprayed with pesticides that contained arsenic. And then they also use um, poultry litter for, or poultry manure for fertilizer mm -hmm. on rice crops. And that poultry fertilizer contains arsenic that is found in, uh, in some of the pharmaceuticals or the drugs that they give the animals. And so that's so, super problematic. And then, then, of course, there's another unique thing about rice plants, and that is that rice plants, as well as ferns, are you know really, really good at uptaking arsenic into the plant. Mm. And so in the UK, for instance, when you take a new baby home from the hospital, it comes with a little you know recommendation that you do not feed that baby rice products until they're six years old. Really? And that's so. How do you find good? Can you find decent rice? Well, you know, the best. I think. I think a lot of the rice supply worldwide is contaminated with arsenic. I think the safest rice uh, in this country is from California, not from the South. Uh, organic, I would guess. Organic rice from California, but also I think that India rice that is grown in India and Pakistan have lower rates of, ar of arsenic as well. However, you can reduce the amount of arsenic even in those rices, which is what I would absolutely recommend you purchase if you're if you're making something for your child, and that you would rinse it thoroughly. When I say thoroughly, I'm talking about rinsing it, letting it sit in the water once, twice, three, four times until the water is no longer cloudy. Mm. And then you actually cook the rice in more water than is called for uh, in the directions on the package. Mm. So that way you're also diluting the amount of arsenic in the rice. But you know, there are other grains that you can give your baby. You can give your baby quinoa, you can give your baby buckwheat, you can give your baby other grains that are that are not contaminated with arsenic. And of course, when I say quinoa and buckwheat, I'm also saying the organic variety. We gave our babies uh, lasagna, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> I think, didn't we? I remember. Well, you know, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about babies and food. You know, I was a great believer in introducing everything to our children, as you remember. You know, we started out with things that, you know, were easy to digest. You know, we started out with, you know, sweet potatoes and avocados and, you know, things like that, that we mashed up that were easy to do, oatmeal and those kinds of things. Of course, you have to be careful about oatmeal today because oats contain a lot of residue from these genetically modified oats that are mm -hmm. mostly grown in this country. Mm -hmm. So you have to, have to, have to choose organic 
products when you are making food for your baby. But making food for a baby is the easiest thing in the world. Can, can it just be the food that we eat it's and just ground up? It's just the food that we eat. It's absolutely. Exceptions. Since we eat organic food, so then you just put a little bit of it in a in a blender. Or in our case, we use this little the thing called the Happy Baby Food Mill. Right? You just throw a little bit of whatever we're having for dinner, and then you grind it up into a puree, and you feed your baby exactly what you're eating. They loved it, as I recall. They loved it. Absolutely loved it. And our kids ate everything. And still do. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. That's going to do it for our Green Street Show today. If you missed any part of the show, you can always listen again at our program website, www.greenstreetradio.com. That's all one word. And there you can listen to any and all of our past shows. Sign up for show alerts, which we send out every night before a Green Street Show, so you don't miss anything. You can also use that site to send us feedback on the show, things you like, things you'd like to hear more about, even things you don't like. We love to hear from you, so please be in touch with us. That's GreenStreetRadio.com. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe and be well. We'll see you next time. <laughs>